You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. God, we ask. We ask that your word come today, not just in word alone, but as Paul prayed, in power, with full conviction, and with your Holy Spirit. This is our prayer through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Can you hear me okay? You know, you can't assume that people can hear you on a Sunday morning. I just have to tell you, I I was confused. That's not an unusual thing for me to be confused, but last week I was confused when Denny said, where do you get those fancy apples? It's like, what are you talking about, Denny? He said, those apples that you were talking about that are wrapped up in tissue paper and cellophane and in the delicate boxes. And I just looked at him blankly like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And everyone else around was looking at him confused as well. And then it hit me. Oh, you mean Apple devices. Apple computers and iPhones. Yes, I did talk about opening up an Apple device. Now, when you say things, you can't always count on people hearing what you intend. They're going to hear based upon their own experience as a non-iPhone user, as a lover of apples. So, here's what we're going to do today. I want you to take out your imaginary pen. So pick out your imaginary pen and hold it up. You can pick whatever color you want. It can be purple, it can be blue, whatever you want. And now hold up an imaginary three by five card. It can be whatever color you want. It could have dots for lines. It could have lines for lines. It could be graph paper, I don't care. All right, now on your three by five card, you're not gonna have to say this out loud, but I want you to write your most serious sins. Get started, start writing it. No one's going to look. It's imaginary, but write them down. What is the biggest struggle in your life? What are those things in your life that you feel separate you from God? Go ahead, keep writing. And when you get done, I want you to hold up your card. Once you get that filled up, think about what most embarrasses you that you've done that maybe only you and God know. When you get it done, Write it up, hold up your card. Don't worry, no one's looking, they can't see. Step number two. I want you to imagine that those sins, those deepest, darkest, most embarrassing sins are tattooed on your forehead, on your neck. They are as plain as day to everyone you meet as your skin color or your hair color. All of these things right there that no one can hide from, they're there for everyone to see. More on that in a moment. I grew up in a church that wanted to be right. That's a pretty noble venture, right? But we wanted to be right about everything. And we thought we were the only ones that were right. And if you were wrong, you were no longer with us. You were excluded from the group. And you can kind of feel good about being right in those environments because you're doing what's right, everyone around you is doing what's right, until, until what? Until you're wrong. And the longer I've lived, the more I've had occasion to be wrong and to see things incorrectly. 
And so what do you do when you're wrong? Are you expelled from the group? Are you pushed away? A long time ago, 2,000 years ago, the Emperor Claudius, who ruled over the Roman Empire, uh, his throne in Rome, he expelled all of the Jews. There was uh, kind of a disturbance going on, a disturbance of Crestus. Does that sound like anyone to you? A disturbance of Crestus? Yes, this is about Christ. Because Romans, they didn't see a difference between Jews or Christians. They just thought of Christians or Crestus people as a sect of Judaism. And so we kicked them all out. Well, what does that do to the church in Rome? Well, suddenly you are 100% only Gentile church. All the Jews are gone. All those religious people, the pious people with a history of following God, they're gone. And so if we split our, our church, our room up today, we could think about one side of the church being all of the Jews, the people who have come back, come back after this time, after Claudius expelled them, and they show up at a church that no longer looks very Jewish, looks very pious, looks very religious. So you folks on one side are the Jews. And all of you here and over are the Gentiles, those who didn't really grow up with religion. In fact, you had all the gods. What's another god? Well, let's just add one more god into the mix. And Paul wants to come for an interview sermon. He wants to come for a visit. And so he writes this letter kind of as an introduction so that he would come and be able to, to speak and get to know and visit this group of people. And he wants to introduce them to the gospel, the gospel of God, of what God has done through Jesus Christ to reveal his righteousness to everyone, to Jews on this side of the house church and to Gentiles on the other side of the house church, and to reveal this righteousness through faith towards faith. Now, if you were with us last week, I talked a lot about the wrath of God. And, and if you haven't, you probably need to go back and listen to that because God's wrath is not active. It's not seeking us out. God's wrath is passive. God doesn't act like an angry, upset human being when his will is violated, that he throws things around the room and gets red in the face and upset. That's not the way God's wrath works. God is not at one moment displaying his righteousness because we've done something good, and at the very next moment displaying his wrath because we've done something wrong. No, it's God's righteousness that leads the way. It's God's righteousness that's active, and the wrath is a servant to God. In fact, what he says is that when we run our lives focused on God, things will go well, and when we don't, they kind of come unglued. It's almost as if you take your car, your beloved car, and you fill it full of ice cream in the gasoline tank. A car is not made to run on ice cream, and what a waste of ice cream, by the way. It's not gonna work. Same thing with an electric car. You can't plug in a hairdryer and use your hairdryer to heat up the car. It's not gonna make the car go. They're not made to be powered by ice cream or by hairdryers. That's not the way they function. God's active power is the righteousness of God in this world. And so he functions through the work of Jesus Christ to bring that righteousness to everyone. So the problem in Romans chapter 1 is a problem of serving other gods. 
any other God other than the one true and living God. People reject God. They replace God or just totally avoid God and don't want to be around God. Instead, they give, they give worship to their desires or to things or people. And they don't honor God, they don't know God, and they certainly don't thank God for anything in their life. The problem in this text is a problem of idolatry, where God is irrelevant. And can you fill your ice cream up to the brim into your gasoline tank of your car? Yes, it's your car. If you want to do that, that's totally up to you. No one can stop you. But what you get are the results of filling your car up with ice cream. You're handed over, and that's what God is said to do. He hands us over to our desires. He gives us exactly what we want. Whatever we pursue is ours. And what we get is a darkened mind where we don't think straight. I mean, you're not going to go anywhere with that car. We get darkened understanding and we can't make sense of our life. So maybe it's good news that you could do whatever you want, but in time it pulls us apart. Well, that brings us to where we're at today. I'm going to read our text. It's one that will make you sweat a little bit. It's a little difficult text. Romans chapter 1, and I'm going to read it in pieces today. I'm going to start in verse 24. So get ready. This is not a G-rated text. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation instead of the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, they were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Wow, there it is. Homosexuality appears in this Longest treatment of homosexuality in the whole New Testament. Two whole verses. That's it. There's one other place in 2 Corinthians 6 where it shows up. And if, if you are homosexual, if you have same-sex tendency, this kind of grabs you by the collar. In fact, it makes all of us kind of open up our eyes. We can't turn our eyes away from the graphic thing that we see here in Scripture. This is stunning. What are we supposed to do with this? giving up natural intercourse for unnatural, consumed with passion. Let's go back to our house church. We've got the Jews on one side of the room who are saying, amen, brother, it's about time somebody said something about this. And the Jews are pleased. Maybe they're not showing it on their face, but there's some fist pumps. And the Gentiles on the other side of the room are kind of sinking down in their seats a little bit, kind of looking around, getting a bit scared about what they're hearing, that this is something that's true of them. Shrinking. And then there's me. I'm floating with you kind of like a ghost. Floating around and I'm like, okay, now wait a second. Paul, this is a church that you want to visit? This is a group of people that you don't know? 
I mean, great Paul started all of these churches, but this is one that he didn't start and he wants to go visit. And this is his intro sermon? Are you kidding me? He doesn't even get out of the first few paragraphs with taking this hot button issue. It's crazy. I mean, as a preacher, I think back and think, well, do you want to go a little more softly here, Paul? Do you not want to touch this hot button issue? Do you want to focus, Paul, instead on this gospel that you say is so important and so front and center. And as I float around looking at this text, I think about friends that I have, of Reed or Brent. I think about Jennifer. I think about Tyler. People who are Christians who are wrestling with same-sex attraction. And so my biggest concern is to glorify and honor God. But in the back of my mind, I have these friends. And I'm concerned about Christians who I know are struggling to come to know God and be in relationship with God and to wrestle with this understanding of having same-sex attraction. And they have to wonder, did God create me this way? What, what am I supposed to do? And so I'm worried about what my words might say because who cares what I have to say? I'm a, a straight, white, heterosexual male. Did not have sex until I got married, been with one woman only my entire life. What do I have to say on this topic that they will listen to me? And then I also have in my mind concern about those that have rejected God, homosexuals who want nothing to do with God, and they hear the words that I just read and they think, well, if that's what the Bible says and that's where God is, then I guess I can't have any relationship with God. And I get concerned that they might see themselves as having no opportunity for relationship with God. I want you to know that this is not the final word on homosexuality. In fact, the reason I had us pull out our invisible cards is because I wanted all of us to know what it feels like to be a homosexual person with same-sex attraction. To feel that inside as a, a primary identity and have it tattooed all around us and to feel the judgment, to feel the condemnation of others as they try to reconcile what it is to be human in this world and what it means to follow God, to deal with black and, work, black and white words on the pages of scripture and to hear condemnation from preachers or teachers, what are they supposed to do? Here in Paul's passage, homosexuality is an illustration. It's not the point. And Paul uses it as an illustration to say, well, here the purpose is that male and female genitals and body fluids come together for pleasure and for the creation of children. That's just kind of the way things that work for life to continue. And what Paul is doing here is he's not arguing from natural theology. He's not arguing from design where if you look at how things are designed, then you can find your way to God. That's not Paul's thinking at all. In fact, in Paul's time, everyone believed in God. Lots of gods, many of them. And so it was assumed. He argues from the fact of there being God, that God exists. And from that, he moves towards how we're to live in response to God, how we're to bring our whole life to God. Today, fewer and fewer people will come from that assumption. They don't start with the understanding that there is a God and that they're to live in relationship with God. 
So here we sit in this house church with the Jews kind of squirming with excitement that this big topic is being brought up and the Gentiles squirming for what they hear. And it continues. It gets worse. Let's keep reading. Look in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And to things that should not be done, they were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious toward their parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. And yet they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Wow, okay. Well, the Jews are nodding furiously at this point because this affirms their approach to morality. It affirms how they live in this world. They are nodding and saying, yes, yes, this is what needs to be said. And as they nod, They look closely, and maybe their ears catch a few of these verses, like verse 32. All of these people deserve to die? The death penalty? I mean, okay, maybe for murder, death penalty, but boasting the death penalty? And again, I'm like, Paul, this is an interview sermon. You are failing miserably. You've only got maybe 50% of the congregation that wants to listen to you at this point. And you keep looking at these texts and you see envy. And it's like, well, envy? Is that the death penalty? That's how we build our algorithms to be able to sell things to people based upon their desire. If they like this, then they're going to like this. So let's keep pumping desire at them to further that desire and nurture that desire. So Paul, maybe he's winning the vote at this point. But then we get to verse 1 of chapter 2. So let's see where we were. Uh, Death penalty, God's decree, yeah, yeah, yeah. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say, we know God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine, whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, you will escape the judgment from God? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Did Paul just do that? Therefore, you have no excuse when you judge. Did Paul do that? Did he just take that big bunch of awful sins that he says deserves the death penalty and say, yeah, if you judge people for doing those, you're doing the very same things. Is that possible to equate homosexuality and all of these things like murder with judgment of other people? Yes. And it's something of a script that plays out because now... The Jews are mad. They've been nodding furiously. They've been excited. Well, yes, I mean, now we've got no one wanting to vote for Paul at all in this interview sermon. And the Jews kind of, it's like a script. If you look in verse 2, they pipe up and they say, well, well, wait a second. We know that God's judgment is on those that do such things. That's in accordance with the truth. This is the truth. And Paul says, verse 3, 
I don't care who you are. Whoever you are, if you judge, there's no escaping the judgment for you. It's a trap. It's a clawed trap that catches everyone in it. We are all judged together. And he uses this example of homosexuality to make us sit up in our seats and pay attention. And he says, choose a side. Are you accepting or are you rejecting? Are you for or are you against? It makes us choose a side. And then he says, if you judge anyone, you are despising the very mercy of God, the kindness, the forbearance, the patience of God, that God is slow about any kind of judgment because he wants people to turn to God. And we, whenever we judge, it's kind of the name of the game. At least it was in my church. We're to have a stance on everything. We're to stand for what that stance is. We're to stand on the corner and announce that stance. We're to condemn people that might violate that stance. And you know what Paul says in verse 5? In verse 5 he says, If you're judging, you are storing up wrath for yourself that will get you. All listeners are mad at Paul at this point. No one escapes the judgment of God. And it's here we have to hover and make a few points. I've got four very important things to share. A lot of them are quick. One of them will take a little bit more time. And the first is this. God exempts, excuse me, God will not love you more for having the right position. God won't love you anymore if you've got the right position or think that you have the right position. You won't be more forgiven. You won't be more loved. Your rightness does nothing about God's love. We are still sinners in the sight of God. All of us. Everyone on the same ground. God will not love you anymore for being right. Two, God doesn't exempt anyone from the law of love. In verse 4, if you look at how God carries himself, God is full of kindness and patience and forbearance. And we're all judged by the measure that we use to judge other people. We're judged, unfortunately, by what we do. We have a responsibility to live a good life before God. And if judgment becomes the name of the game for us, if that's who we are, we'll be judged by that judgment. This isn't just Paul, it's Jesus, too. In Matthew 21, 31, and 32, he looks at people like me, you know, pious, well-trained, holier-than-thou kind of people. I don't think of myself that way, but people are definitely going to see me in this category, right? He, he looks at people like us, and Jesus says, hey, Brady, did you notice that the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners are all going into heaven ahead of you because they're trusting God? They're believing in God. That's a big statement. No one is exempted from the law of love. We all must show this mercy and grace. Well, the third one, you might be saying, well, wait, what about homosexuality? Isn't that what this is about? No, it's not about homosexuality. That's an illustration. This is a passage that's about idolatry, exalting our desire to the place of God. 
What we want becomes king of all things. And we tend to assume that all desires are good, that if I want it, it must be good for me and something that I should pursue. We need to understand that these sins that are listed at the end of chapter 1, and even the sins that are listed of judgment at the beginning of chapter 2, the sins are not the target of God's wrath. These sins are the result of people that will not lift God up to be number one. Do you see that difference? Sometimes we think about wrath as it's focused in on what we've done, but our sins are not the cause of God's wrath. Our sins are the result of rejecting God, of not putting God first and foremost in our life. So with this passage in particular, it's not a full analysis. It's not a, a full, complete view of homosexuality. In fact, it's not the final word. In Paul's time, they would not have thought of homosexuality as an orientation or as an identity. They couldn't think of that. They did think about homosexual acts, but not an orientation. In fact, it could be that Paul is attacking pederasty. And you're like, peder what? Pederasty which is the love of an older man for a young boy. Many Greeks were involved in this. A 30-year-old man, a 14-year-old boy, heavy, insignificant power dynamics going on. Maybe that's the case. It could be that it's homosexual prostitution or prostitution in the temple courts. That might kind of shrink things down too much. That may be a little too simplified because he still is very direct about homosexuality. But this is not the final word. He doesn't lift this up as the unforgivable pra practice. The summary is that it's about displacing God, displacing him, and it produces distorted acts. So here's the part where I want to go a little longer on this third point. Some things that you just need to know if you're entering into conversations with people that have a different view from you, okay? Good Christians disagree on this topic. Bible-believing, faithful people disagree on what to do. Second, instead of saying, what's your position? Instead of starting there, why don't you figure out what your position is on loving people who are sinners just like you, maybe with different sins? Third, instead of making the goal agreement, Back that up a little bit and first start with understanding. Wouldn't that be a good goal? Where I'm trying to understand you and where you're coming from and what you think about things. Let understanding be the goal. Fourth, stop comparing the best of your side to the worst of the other side. Do you know what I mean about this? Like, oh, look at this monogamous, heterosexual, married couple with two kids and then compare that to a promiscuous lesbian or homosexual. See, it just doesn't work. Or similarly, to take a married Christian homosexual couple and compare it to a broken family with a, a spouse that's running around and sleeping with everyone, right? Don't compare your best option with the other side's worst option. Two more. Search the scripture. Search the scripture very carefully. Uh, sexuality in the Bible is worlds different from our own. And there are thousands of years that separate us from it. So understand it. 
There's a lot to be digested. And then sixth, after searching the scriptures, think about real people, real stories. Don't just talk about categories of people. Think about the people that you know who are homosexual or transgender, who have different identities. Think about the people that are in your families, in your workplaces. And don't just make decisions by blanket categorization. Make decisions based upon the people that you know and love. All right, well, those are the first three. The fourth one is about desire. We've got to say something about desire. Same-sex attraction is not wrong. You're not bad if you have same-sex attraction. Desire is simply desire. We have desires for all kinds of things. And just because you have a desire, it doesn't make you wrong. Whenever we look at our desires, we sometimes think that desires are either good or bad. And it's more about what we do. And so if I'm talking to someone that's under 25 about sexuality, about gender identity, about any of these categories, I just want to tell you to slow down. Do not be sexually active. You're going to have all kinds of desires that come through your mind. And just because you're attracted to someone or something, that doesn't lock you into a sexuality or to a gender. It's just a desire. It's there. It's present. And sometimes those things change. Don't trust your desires. Don't put all of your confidence in desire because life is more than sex. It's more than any of our desires. So be slow about changing your body. Be slow about using your body with other people and give things time because desire is a very bad master. When we give ourselves over to desires, to the desire for substances or the desire for food, the desire for sex, or to brag, or to be right. When we give ourselves over to those desires, they will destroy us. And so look instead at the outcome of life. Look at what is happening with people who give themselves over to desire. Well, that brings us back to our real topic. Our real topic is about replacing, or rejecting, or avoiding God. The real issue in this text is about idolatry. And sometimes that manifests itself very vocally, like in verse 30, haters of God. And sometimes it's more hidden, like how we judge other people, or how we look at them as twisted and confused and wrong. Our judgment of others will not keep us from being condemned ourselves. We will not escape judgment. We cannot overlook the kind of God that God is, who is forbearing and patient and kind. And we can trust God as our God. There should be no other God. We don't put our views to be God. We don't try to justify ourselves. We look to God. Because the heart of this question is about honoring God with everything about who we are. Honoring God with our bodies, with the decisions that we make. Honoring our God with the relationships that we have. Honoring God in every issue and every action that we can imagine. And sometimes those things are obvious and visible, and sometimes they're hidden. 
We must bring our gender, our sexuality, our lives, our finances, all to God. Because God is not going to destroy you. He doesn't want to ruin your life. God is not about just enforcing rules. He doesn't say to us, hey, get your life together. Fix yourself. And then come be with me. That's not the way God works. God says, come. Bring your mental conditions. Bring your sins Bring your finances, your identities, bring all of that. Bring even your rebellion against your parents and bring that to me. Because the good news in this passage is that God is not partial. You know, Paul, I just don't understand his approach to an interview sermon. I would want to teach him a different way. But then you look at all of what he does as we hold our invisible note cards And he really levels the playing field because no one of us has any worse sin than any other. And the good news is that God is not partial. If you look at verse 11, there is no unforgivable sin. There's no unforgivable thing at all. This guy is rich in kindness and patience and forbearance. And the sins that we think is the cause of God's wrath, they're not. They're the result of a life that's not built to honor God at every turn. We are together, all judged together. None of us has our life together, but all of us can find the together life in God. A God who loves us, who made us, and who wants nothing more than our best in this world. Let's pray. God, we come to you as we are. Not perfect. Not with all the answers, for sure. We come to you with our judgments. We come to you with our confusion, our desires. We come to you because you are God. And we we ask you. We ask you to receive us. And to give us a desire placed upon our hearts where we want you more than anything else, where you become our identity and that our whole orientation in this life is to you. We thank you for loving us, for showing no partiality, for just chuckling when we might try to one-up one another over being better or having fewer sins. Thank you, God, for being a God who through Jesus has shown incredible love giving up your life for ours. And we pray this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.